Before we start this show, just a word from our sponsor. 20 by 20 Apparel. Founded in 2015, 20 by 20 Apparel brings original tributes to pro wrestling's classic arenas, moments, and events. They look to spotlight the bloopers, bleeps, and body slams along with the biggest, smallest, strangest, and strongest that pro wrestling has had to offer. Along with their awesome line of pro wrestling apparel, they do offer many services. In the world of wrestling, there are hundreds of shirts, promotions, flyers, social media accounts, and ads. Don't get lost in the sea of parody shirts and display fonts. They can provide professional graphic design services at a reasonable price. 20 by 20 also hand screen prints all the tees in-house. If you would like to discuss possible run of tees, posters, koozies, foam fingers, or whatever, drop them a line. Go to 20 by 20 apparel. That's the number 20 X, the number 20 apparel.com. Now let's get to the show. Fresh is the word. I'm Jim Duggan, got long wood for plenty hoes. I keep it fresher than fresh, but you already know. You suckers bum me, I'm money, I got a ton of flows. My weed loud like a motherfucking thunder roll. Your shit quiet like you ballin' on a budget though. We see your kicks and we laugh and yell about it though. You see me shining like a suit on puppy. You know my grind and shit is too strong, buddy. That's why the dude call money. I be stuntin' like it's nothing at all. Cause it's nothing to me, it's probably something to y'all. Trying to smoke like me, then come and fuck with your dog. Got a closet full of kids, you can't cop it tomorrow. And I'm fresher than the freshest, you can tell it's in my essence. Bitch, you see the way I'm rapping? Yes, I do this shit to death. I tell I'm running out of breath. I tell somebody cut a check. But either way, you know it's fresh. But either way, you know it's fresh. Fresh. We fresh. 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 Welcome to the Fresh of the Word podcast. I'm your host, Kelly K. Fresh Frazier. And on Fresh of the Word, we like to deliver wisdom through great stories from the minds of bright creatives of pop culture. Through those stories, we like to dissect the journey of our guests and present actionable lessons and advice for our listeners, no matter what career or avenue of artistry they pursue. And before we get into this episode, I want to give a shout out to Knox Money, Bang Belushi, and Foul Mouth for the theme music for Fresh of the Word. And if you would like to support the podcast, you can always go to freshofthepodcast.com and just share any of the links for any of the episodes on any of your social media platforms. And also, you can subscribe to Fresh of the Word pretty much anywhere that podcasts are streamed. And that includes Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, pretty much everywhere. And please, rate and review, especially on Apple Podcasts. It will definitely help out the show. If you want to contact me, you can always reach me by email at djkfresh at gmail.com. Or you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at kfresh is the word and on facebook at facebook.com slash kfresh and you can also follow fresh is the word on twitter at fresh is the word and that's is with iz instagram at fresh is the word podcast and facebook at facebook.com slash fresh is the podcast this is episode 141 for this episode we are joined by another person from the movie rotten tail actor and graffiti artist corin nemick Known for a variety of acting roles throughout his career, including the lead on the early 90s TV sitcom, Parker Lewis Can't Lose, 
Nemec has also been a part of the LA graffiti scene since the 80s, aligning himself with the worldwide collective of graffiti and street artists, The Chosen Few. Currently, Nemec stars in the movie Rotten Tail, created by episode 137 guest David C. Hayes and co-written and directed by episode 138 guest Brian Skiba. Rotten Tail is premiering in select locations throughout the month of April. And during our interview, we talked about the making of Rotten Tail and getting into the Peter Cotton Rotten Tail character, along with his history doing graffiti arts. All right, let's get on to the interview with Corin Nemec. Yeah, the other day I got to uh, go to the, the premiere of Rotten Tail here in Michigan, and it was like super funny, man. Like it was, it was a riot. Man. It was a great movie. Oh, thanks, dude. Thanks. You know, for for less than three hundred thousand dollars and a sixteen day shoot, you know, it's uh, it's pretty impressive what we were able to get done. When you were first uh, brought the script for this, what was your reaction? <laughs> well, um, I actually checked out the graphic novel first. Uh, and, um, cause I've always been a huge fan of graphic novels and, and comics in general, but graphic novels probably more so. Uh, and, uh, and I was just excited about the idea of, you know, of getting into that world of, of, um, of changing, you know, of, of changing graphic novels from the page to the screen. And, uh, and the idea was so outrageous. It, it just, it just made sense. You know, this, this science is turns into a half man, half bunny. And, and as, uh, as I started reading the script, the, the, uh, the elements of humor they were able to bring to, uh, the character was, was really, um, it really kept it grounded because if, I think that if you tried to make this film without the humor, it'd just be way, way over the top. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, uh, and for some reason with, with the, with the ridiculous kind of, uh, almost Mel Brooksian type of humor, it uh, it actually becomes more believable, you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it's a lot of fun. I think it's uh, it becomes a lot of fun. And um, uh, so when I started working with Brian, who uh, Brian Skiva, the director, who just did a an incredible job at, with such constraints, uh, you know, with such um, uh, budget constraints and time constraints, and uh, you know. Uh, production design constraints and I mean every constraint you could imagine was uh you know was thrown at him and he was able to along with uh the help of, of his crew obviously but uh especially his cinematographer but he was able to really really um you know make uh make a make a real film out of something that could have been a, a potentially a disaster and we had an incredible um uh, makeup uh, team. I mean, we spent probably a third of the budget was just for the makeup alone. <laughs> right, right. What sort of uh, freedom did you get, you know, to, you know, playing this character um, to, you know, br bring life to it on the screen? Well, really, it was, it was when we did the makeup test at, um, uh, at the, uh, the studio where the, um, where they have the prosthetics uh, lab and all of that. So we, uh, we shot a makeup test there and, uh, kind of like did a mock-up of a scene, um, which, uh, William McNamara came out for and everything. And, and that's when really the, the, the uh, the character was discovered by 
by myself and I think Brian Skiba as well, because you know it's it's such a it's such a wild character <laughs> that it, it could go it could go really wrong. You know what I'm saying? Right. Depending on the choices, uh, especially with how the how does the voice sound? What is you know that that's a major thing. Like what does this this character sound like? And having the rabbit teeth in that really made a big difference in kind of helping to find how does he talk because the teeth were, were so, um, were, were so big and they, they, they were not conducive to speaking without like a lisp or something. So I had to really, uh, I had to really concentrate and focus on the dialogue to, to not slur it, you know? <laughs> and, um, and then, uh, the, once we got, you know, the face on and, you know, the head on and all of that stuff and the wardrobe and I was able to kind of, you know, stand in front of a full length mirror for a little bit and, and move around and, and sort of find, uh, find the, the character. Then, you know, the voice came with that and, uh, and then the behaviors and, and everything else. And then Brian Skiba is so, uh, he was so giving in terms of, uh, allowing, uh, uh, allowing uh, us, the actors to, um, go off script a bit, you know what okay. I mean? And just yeah. kind of go with what felt right in the moment. And, um, and that really helped a lot too. And I think that, uh, that both of us realized when we did that makeup test, Brian and I, I think that both Brian and I both realized that we actually really had our hands on something, uh, potentially really special. And, uh, that would have a, a, a possibly a, a really big cult following and could lead to more rotten tail films down the road. Um, and that, uh, that was an exciting moment for all of us for sure. How much of, you know, what we saw on screen was, you know, improv from you? Well, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily say so much improv as much in the moment. Some of it was, yeah. But a lot of it was more improv in my rehearsal process leading up to it. So I would, when I would show up on set, I would, I would take Brian aside and show him my script and my notes and kind of, you know, go over, like, what my thoughts were with him to make sure that, you know, we were on the same page. And as we kept working together, it got less and less critical to, you know, to, to go over it with him in detail. But I, I never want to spring too much on a, on a director you know, without discussing it with them first, because it could go wrong, you know, it could go, it could go very wrong. Uh, so I, I would always bring it to his attention first and kind of discuss it a little bit. And sometimes he would throw some other ideas at me that would make even more sense or that would bring even more to a scene. Uh, and uh, I think that collaboration really, really um, led to what we have today, you know, in terms of, in terms of that character and the other character, you know, some of the broader characters, uh, Brian Skiba really gave us, uh, uh, some elbow room to push the envelope, uh, with William McNamara's character and Gianni Gribaldi and Tank Jones and some of the bigger, broader characters in it. Uh, he, uh, he really gave us, uh, a good amount of freedom there. You said when you were, you know, kind of getting into this character that, you, you and Brian just realized something special was coming out of it. You know, what do you feel, you know, is that sort of special thing that, that, that this rotten tail character has that could lead to other things in the future? Um, you know, I think part of what brought it all together, you know, was, uh, was also how good the makeup work and the makeup test, how, 
how well everything looked uh, when, when it was all put together. And, um, you know, that, that was a big part of it because when you're doing anything with prosthetics and all of that, you know, there's always a chance that it might not look the way you want, you know? Right. So that was a big part of it, seeing that, wow, this looks very, very legit. This looks like what you would ha- what you would see on a on you know a very big budget film and uh and that was uh you know that that was why so much of the budget went into um the special effects makeup was because without it looking as great as as it possibly could we we could fall really short on uh on the reception of the of the film because the film like I said is done for you know, uh, a, a good amount below three hundred thousand dollars and shot sixteen days. So when you when you take that into account, it's uh, uh, it, it's it's pretty incredible that we were able to pull off, or that Brian really was able to pull off what he pulled off because you know he's put together a a very well rounded um, film that has a, a solid beginning, middle, and end, and great character arcs. Uh, and everything else that you would expect from a film. So I think that, that when we realized that we had something special was, again, at, when we did the makeup test and knowing that, you know, if we do this film right, if it comes off right, even as small budget as it is, even with all the constraints, uh, you know, that, that we were up against in order to get the film made, we still knew that if we at least hit the target that with the right amount of success of the film, we could come back and do a second one at a proper budget and really show people what, you know, what, what, what we're made of in terms of filmmakers, you know, especially Brian. It's uh, he, what he can do on a shoestring is absolutely incredible. Yeah, this, this, a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, lesser directors would never be able to get all of the shots they need to tell the story on such a tight schedule with such a, uh, a big, uh, story, and he got more than enough shots and captured everything that was in the script. Nothing had to be cut out. In fact, there was there was so much captured that the movie was too long. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> right. So, which which was great because you want to have a lot of fat to cut off uh, to to trim to trim it down and get it to its its fighting weight. Basically, you know, you you want to have that extra fat on there to play with when you're in post-production and um and he he did a really a really good job trimming that fat off and getting it down to it to its lean mean you know fighting machine uh uh quality and uh and i think that um i think that there that there will be because the character is so much fun and the other characters are so much fun to watch and the story is 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 fun to follow that people will be forgiving of some of the um the areas where you can kind of see the budget, you know, and, and will be willing to, you know, enjoy the film for what it is and, uh, and not, and not be judgmental about certain uh, aspects of it that were just impossible to get around under the, uh, the, the time and, and, and financial constraints that we were under. What did you enjoy about playing the Peter Cotton character that turns into Rotten Tail? Well, I like the fact that there was a very definitive difference between the two characters. It's sort of like Jeff Goldblum in The Fly. That's what I, I equated it to, was this 
this sort of um, uh, sheepish, nerdy scientist that then suddenly gets taken over by this animal side and 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 is no longer who he used to be. Uh, so the difference is obviously that the fly was not a comedy, but uh, uh, with uh, Rotten Tail, what's a lot of fun is that you know you find somebody in Peter Cotton who is is very is very weak doesn't like doesn't stand up to people he is um you know nervous and and not and not able to um uh, you know to be the man that he would like to be and so when his alter ego comes forth in the form of of rotten tail rotten tail is is all of the opposite of that and that, uh, and that I think is what's great is is seeing the dynamic difference and the fact that that there was actually a decent amount of time spent on that that changeover. You know, some films that are along these lines, you don't ever really get to know the the real person. You only get to know the creature version of them or whatever. You know, right. so it's great to to spend some time and get to know who Peter Cotton is and get to know some of his background before that transformation into rotten tail. And I think that it makes the, uh, the transformation that, that much more enjoyable, uh, especially when you start to get to know rotten tail as a character who even rotten tail, it takes him a little bit to get to know himself. You know what I'm saying? Right. Over, you know, over your career, you've, you know, you've steadily had work um, throughout the years and most people know you from Parker Lewis but like I remember, um, it's funny. Um, some you know, a little while ago, you were actually on one of my favorite podcasts, um, Allison Rosen's podcast, and uh-huh. I, yeah, and I remember her being super excited with you being on there. But it was on that podcast I realized, oh, this is heavily into like graffiti and the hip hop culture and everything. So oh yeah, yeah. Th- that yeah, was totally. like something really super cool to like find out. Um, about you and everything looking back at those days that you were you know doing graffiti and everything like what sort of like sticks out in your mind during that time you know why did you love it so much uh well i still do it yeah. uh, I, I i still do uh you know i still paint in the uh you know with aerosols and in a graffiti style i still paint walls and uh um i get a lot of opportunities to paint when i travel and i've made a lot of connections uh across the world with other artists and uh, and and work kind of with an artist uh, with a collective an artist collective um called the chosen few which is dispersed across the whole planet you know with members all over the u.s and all over europe and and parts of southeast asia and australia and you know it's just it's so traveling around it's it's easy to be able to connect up with with different artists that uh, that are all associated with the same collective and then they they can get you you know spots to paint or 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 show you where the uh, you know the places are to go and put up some street art or whatever you know whatever the uh, the medium is and uh, so I still enjoy it very much. I mean for me the the, the I think what grabbed me most was the excitement of it all. That there was a, a real danger to it in the in in Los Angeles in the mid 1980s and you know when I started doing this. When I started doing graffiti art in like 1985, and uh, and it was uh, it was something that you didn't you know you couldn't do just in your room. Sure, you could do your sketches in your black book, and you could you know come up with ideas and plans for for what you wanted to paint. But you had to find a graffiti yard 
you know, that was safe enough to go paint in, or you had to go at nighttime and paint illegally or whatever the case may be. And that, that brought a real, you know, adrenaline rush to the whole experience. <clears throat> I think that that's what really separates graffiti art from all other artistic mediums is that it's, it's not something that you do or experience or explore in a studio. It's something that you can only uh, do and experience and explore out on the streets um, you know, and, and it out in environments and, and especially, you know, some of my, my friends and I, we like to do things called like uh, a graffiti safari where we go out to, you know, abandoned buildings we know about way out in the desert or stuff deep in the forest or, you know, abandoned farms or whatever and going and, uh, and painting murals in places where no one would ever, <laughs> will, most likely no one will ever see it until it gets either torn down or, repurpose for something, you know, unless somebody else goes out there. But oddly enough, you know, the graffiti, in the graffiti art world, there's some, there's some pretty interesting places that, that a lot of graffiti artists know about. Like there's some abandoned trains way out, um, uh, ab abandoned passenger cars way out near the Mexican border uh, outside of San Diego, way out in the middle of the desert that you can hike to. And, uh, and people go out there to paint, you know, quite often uh, to paint the trains. When you're connected to like this worldwide collective of graffiti artists, you know, what is like sort of the common bond that everybody has, you know, doesn't matter where they're from. Well, that's just, it's, it's being a part of, of the graffiti art and now, you know, more of what's called street art, you know, which is a, which is a form of, uh, of art that takes place on the streets as well, but hat comes in the form of stencil art or, or uh, poster art, or you know, if people are doing sculptures. They're doing, um, they're 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 doing. Um, uh, well, I forget the I forget the name of it right now. But when when you go and you actually like set up displays or do weird stuff, you know. But there's there's a guy named Classic Jesus, for instance, that uh, that he went in before the Oscars a few years back. He went and put up this like this eight foot Oscar statue that had a. Uh, they were shooting up heroin, you know what I mean? <laughs> I remember that. On, yeah. on Hollywood Boulevard. And then you also have the In Decline, the In Decline uh, Collective, uh, which did the, uh, the Trump statues all over the U.S. Um, uh, the King Has No Clothes statues, which was like a, a giant naked Trump. And they put up, uh, I, I don't know if it was seven or eight of them or maybe nine. They put them up all, in a bunch of different cities all on the same morning uh, across the U.S. And, uh, so there's those, you know, there's, there's that kind of stuff. I'm not myself personally, I'm not really, uh, politically motivated in my, in my expression. And most of the artists in our collective really aren't either. I think that that's what kind of bonds us as well is that we're not on some, you know, some crazy, like, you know, uh, uh, anti-government or anarchist, anarchistic, you know, type of, uh, uh, a vibe. We're, we're just about putting up cool art and, and, uh, and trading art and, um, um, and putting up each other's art. So for instance, somebody who, who can't get over to the U S from say Germany, they can mail a bunch of their art to members that we have in, in like Denver, for instance, or down in, uh, uh, in Miami or in New York or out in LA or up in Portland or Austin or, you know, anywhere else we have, we have members. And then they, they'll get that art and they'll send them some back to, to whatever country they're in uh, over in Europe or Australia, wherever it is. 
And then when they go out and they put up their art in their town, they'll put up the, the art of, of the other collective member as well at the same time. And so it helps to, uh, to basically brand, you know what I mean? It's like free advertising basically is kind of what, it's how we refer to it sometimes, uh, going out and getting some free advertising. So, uh, you know, it just helps people to spread their brand. And, uh, and then as a collective, when, you know, when people see that you're kind of a part of this, this collective that's, uh, that is, that now has a pretty big following and, and a lot of, uh, of respect from the from the art community because we have so many different uh, types of artists in that, that are from the collective, from graffiti artists to stencil artists to poster artists to you know uh, sculpt sculptors to all all different kinds. So uh, I think that 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 uh, is is a new thing as well because um, uh, nowadays most of the time you don't really most street artists don't really have crews. They kind of just operate alone. And a lot of graffiti artists are in crews, but they don't want to associate with street artists because they don't, they, they don't really respect street art as a form of, of graffiti, you know, which it, it, it isn't necessarily, but it falls into a similar category right. um, because, they're, because of, uh, of the environments that you go to, to, to do your art. Uh, the environments aren't, aren't much different. So... Um, uh, creating a collective that that doesn't have any boundaries. It's just so long as you're doing your art, whatever your style is, so long as it's good and you're doing it out there on the streets and you're, you know, and, and you're um, associating with the collective itself and helping to uh, to spread the name of the collective and whatnot. Then it 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 uh, it's it's a it's positive for the overall group and it keeps people inspired. You know, when 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 other people, other members of the collective, see what other uh, guys are doing in other countries or in other areas of, of the U.S. or in, or even in their own city, because we have multiple members in in, in some cities, of course. You know, uh, like in the in the Los Angeles, uh, San Diego area, there's probably close to 30 or 40 members uh and then in in austin there might be six or eight and and in portland there could be four maybe four to six or you know so different cities have different amounts and over in europe we have a pretty good uh amount of people in in germany you know we probably have about 10 people in germany we got people in switzerland we got you know um people down in south america <laughs> people right. in mexico you know so it's it's pretty cool because uh uh, when you do get a chance to travel, you, you, if you want to travel overseas, you already have a, you know, a, a connection with people there from uh, from the group. You may not have ever even met them in person yet, but when you do see them, because I've gotten a chance to meet uh, a number of them in my travels, uh, you just feel immediately a kinship, you know, Word. and um, <laughs> and they'll let you sleep on their couch. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> right, uh, right. They'll show you where you get where you can get supplies. It's just like you know the whole the whole nine yards. It just uh, it's uh, it's it's very it's very exciting. It's a great movement to be a part of. As somebody who's been a part of the graffiti scene since the '80s, like you said, in the past, in the re in, in like the recent years, maybe the last five to ten years, street art has you know made its way into like sort of the mainstream where there's buildings with street art, there's advertisements with street art. You know, what's your thoughts about all of that? 
Well, I'm, you know, it's similar to what, what graffiti was, was doing in the, in the eighties. It was finding its way into mainstream and then, and then it sort of dipped out and now it's coming back again. I think that, I think probably the biggest issue that a lot of, um, a lot of, uh, of graffiti artists, which I, which is the school I come out of, even though I do other kinds of mediums, but I think one of the issues that a lot of graffiti artists see is that they, that they've been, that they put, you know, two decades worth of time into creating their brand and painting and getting up and, you know, doing like mural after mural after mural and all different kinds of places, risking their lives at times. And then you have some muralists who've never done anything illegal in their lives and they suddenly pop up and they're getting paid, you know, thirty, fifty thousand dollars to paint the side of a building and they're all hip slick and cool and doing <laughs> doing uh, you know, shows in the galleries and all of that stuff and and in the meanwhile the the real, you know, uh, graffiti artists are getting are getting shoved off to the side and not being you know, not being embraced by uh by this new kind of counterculture that's happening with these muralists who tend to specifically use uh, aerosols or use spray paints, which is, which is held very dear by the graffiti artists because it was the graffiti artists that started the trend of painting with spray paint and especially doing it in, in great detail and doing works of art, you know, on scales that, that, uh, that were, that are uh, pr- pretty, uh, pretty amazing because in order to do a large scale mural, with just regular hand paint and paintbrushes, you're talking about a huge amount of time. And if you're doing it in uh, um, in aerosols with the different kind of caps that they that they have available, uh, you know you can fill in the space and create all of the the different shading and all of the effects that you want at such a more rapid pace with the same or even potentially better results than you would get doing it on a large scale with paintbrushes, you know? Right. Uh, and so I, I, I do understand kind of like the, the frustration that, that the graffiti art world has with, with what's happening with a lot of, uh, a lot of the muralists nowadays, because you have, you have regular artists who are just coming out of art school and suddenly they're figuring out how to use a can of paint and use the different tips. And they're just going big on walls, but, they, but they've never done anything illegal in their lives. You know what I mean? <laughs> So, uh, and, and I, I can understand that frustration. There are a number of, of graffiti artists who, who have made that transition into, um, into the mural scene doing large, la- large murals and stuff. And I've done a few myself, uh, but, um, uh, generally speaking, most of us graffiti artists are paying for all, all of the material. We're never, we're never getting paid for what we're doing. Right. We're always paying for it. You know, that's that's one of the ways that we, we that we get um, spaces to do the to do the work is to go to a building that always is getting tagged up or is, is, is run down and telling the building owner, look, we'll keep this fresh. We'll put a bunch of new paintings on it all the time. If something gets messed up, we'll come back, we'll fix it up and, and we'll keep it looking good. And we'll and we'll transition different artists, you know, in and out and uh, and and, the, and we'll keep it looking nice. And so the, you know, we'll get space to paint. And then also you'll have, um, because the graffiti scene and is, is a pretty rough scene, you know, you'll have some muralists will come and they'll get a really great wall in a, in a great location, but nobody respects them. So they'll go and they'll tag over their, their painting, you know right. what I'm saying? <laughs> right. Like won't even think twice about it. And 
whereas if you get a, a really well-respected graffiti artist from the area or even from the world scene that goes and does the same exact wall in the same exact area, nobody will touch it because that dude has gone through a lot to get where he is in terms of, uh, you know, putting his ass on the line for his art. Right, right, right. When when it comes to, like, like true graffiti artists, you know, even yourself, uh, what you know what sort of message do you want your pieces to have you know you said that you don't really have any sort of political you know views with it or anything but when someone looks at your pieces you know what do you want them to feel or see well for me for me really it's just i just want it to look fresh i just want it to i just want the lines to be really crispy I, if i'm doing a character i want the character to look to look right you can check out some of my work on instagram the 169 is my is my art instagram and uh you know i i'm more interested in just making it look clean making the colors pop making it look like you know when you see it you're like oh wow that's a lot of fun to look at like i have a director friend of mine kyle rankin lives out in the in the san fernando valley and he has a wall on the side of his house that was always getting tagged and uh and he knew that i, I that i i did uh, graffiti art and um, was like, dude, you got to come and just do something on this wall. And so I was like, yeah, cool. So I, I did, uh, you know, uh, Duck Rogers and um, and uh, uh, what's what's the alien's name from Warner Brothers, the weird little dude. Uh, oh, um, uh, in the skirt and the uh, and the and the tro and the uh, the Roman helmet, the yeah, Trojan helmet. Yeah, I forget his name too. <laughs> I can't believe I can't remember his name right now. But anyway, I did a scene, you know, from where, where they they had an episode together. So I, I took out of that and I did, you know, a scene of them where, you know, they're, they're like having a standoff with with the cool uh, outer space landscape, you know, behind them and everything. And right. uh, and it, it looks great. All the neighbors love it. It's a lot of fun for the kids, you know, and 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 it. And the uh, the local graffiti artist, because my the collective I'm from has been around Los Angeles since the late '80s. Um, it, it was more of just a crew back then, obviously, but uh, but has kind of has has made the transition into something bigger uh, than it than it was before. But uh, but because of that, because I've been painting in this town for a long time, you know, you you, you certainly get a certain amount of, of kind of respect. We're like, oh yeah, that's that's. Not only is that really dope, and it's graffiti art, right. but it comes from the old school. So people, generally speaking, unless they're just a complete idiot, they'll, <laughs> they'll leave it alone and they'll give it respect, you know. Um, <laughs> right. Or if they're just, you know, or you also have like, you know, guys that are just they're, they're not they're not into the art form of it. They're just into tagging. They're just into bombing. They're just into getting their name up, and they don't really care about the art or anything else. And they're happy to go you know, catch a tag over somebody's piece. I mean, some of those dudes pay for it in, in ways that they might not expect, but, you know, that, that does happen in, in the scene for sure, you know? Right, right. That's, that's great. That's very interesting. What, uh, I always like to ask this question in interviews is that what is something, like a nugget of knowledge from your life or career that anybody listening to this interview, doesn't matter what sort of avenue of artistry that they're in, that they can sort of project into their own life? I, you know, it's a tough one. I mean, 
I, I would say the least expensive form is writing. You, you know what I'm saying? All you need is uh, a pen and some paper if you can't get a computer. So uh, whether it's it's uh, it's poetry or, or short stories or, or novels or screenplays or whatever else, um, I think that uh, that writing is is uh, although it's extremely time consuming, I think it's probably the, the least expensive in terms of what you have to acquire in order to accomplish it as an art form. Um, and then uh, and then it trickles down from there. I mean, to you know, to continue doing what I like to do, it's like sometimes the expense of it gets to be a bit much because I have other life expenses that are you know that that that, that kind of can become senior to wanting to go and paint a wall and getting, you know, collecting all of the paint, all of the caps, all of that stuff. And then, you know, even, you know, if you're doing the street art thing, you, you know, you designing your stencils, you still need the paint for that. You need the paper rolls for that. You need to be able to buy the glue or make the glue yourself or whatever the case may be. You know, there's a lot that goes into it where the, there is a, a consistent expense that is being put out uh, in order to continue uh, doing do, doing the art, you know. So the lesson, without getting anything back, because that's the thing, you know, the graffiti artist, a real graffiti artist, is never looking to get paid for it. Right. A real graffiti artist is just looking for a place to paint, and uh, and and is not is not concerned with somebody giving them an exchange. If somebody, the exchange that they want is for somebody to go, yo, that's a dope piece, bro. Great job. You know, that's like, they're like, yeah, right on. You know, that's like, that's the exchange they probably, you know, most graffiti artists get the most out of is, is, uh, is just getting a little bit of, uh, of, uh, accolades for, for what you've accomplished. Right. So the lesson there is like, maybe have, you know, have something in your life that, you know, pays the bills that is in service to the things that you want to do. Yes, I mean any any art form that anybody takes up. There's no guarantees. There's zero guarantees that you're going to be able to pay the bills doing it. It's not it's not that kind of job, you know. Uh, granted, you can become like a graphic artist, like my mom was when I was growing up, and my dad was an architect. Or you know, there's certain art forms that you can take on, and you can get a job with a company, and you can work for that company, and you can do you know, design logos or design buildings or whatever else the case may be. But, uh, but uh, you know, especially for being an actor, a writer, a producer, or even, even some of the, the, uh, uh, the work that I've, I've done uh, in my street art, I've, you know, I've opened up those shops online, teespring.com. I have a Pike 169 shop there uh, where, uh, where, you know, you can get, some of the images that I've, that I've been putting up for years on, you know, fucking t-shirts and coffee mugs, whatever the hell, you know what I mean? That kind of bullshit. And, uh, and even then it's like, I'm not spending all my time trying to market that. It's just something that I put out there because I had a request from a few people that they'd like to have the option of getting that. So I really created that just for the couple of people that wanted to buy some stuff and I've never made any real money off of it, you know? Um, and the same thing when I published, uh, one of my scripts and, and kind of turned it into a scripted novel. And I did that, a self-publishing of, of that was because I just wanted people to, to know the story, to hear this, to, to read the story and, and know what it was. Cause it was sort of, uh, the story was, was, you know, uh, 
kind of loosely based on what my experience was like growing up as a graffiti artist in Los Angeles called Venice High. And that's on Lulu.com. You just look up Venice High. And then I have uh, um, another coffee table book I put together that's just photos of a bunch of the street art I've done around the world called The Paper Chase, which is on Lulu.com. And then I've also done photography. I, I did, um, there's a rapper named Mickey Avalon, and I, I, uh, I, I did all the shots for his first album. And, uh, and I, I put together a coffee table book called uh, A Pimp's Paradise of all the photos from his first album. And I've done a lot of photography actually over the years, but okay. it's all, it's all been for myself, a journalistic style approach to it. So I have, I have, you know, thousands of photos that I've never done a show with. I've never, you know, I still shoot in 35 millimeter. Um, and, uh, and I've just, there's not, I, I've given, I've given some, I've blown some of them up and gotten them framed and given them away as gifts. But a lot of everything that I've done, I've just never been able to monetize it outside of acting and producing. Uh, so, and there's just no guarantees in acting and producing. It's, it's been a roller coaster ride, uh, pretty much since I started, you know, <laughs> but, uh, but there, you know, there's definitely, when I was younger, I definitely was making uh, a hell of a lot more money than I am now, but I also was, was much younger and spending a hell of a lot more money than I am now. <laughs> so, so it's always a hustle, man. It's always a hustle, and you just got to, uh, no matter what, it's like, you know, the belief in oneself has to be strongest within oneself uh, because at the end of the day, no, one's, no, no one, no matter how much they say they believe in you, no one's going to believe in you as much as you have to believe in yourself if you're going to try and make it as an artist. That's just it, period. Right, and before I let you go, you know, speaking of this roller coaster ride of your life and career, you know, what are you up to these days? What can we look forward to? to uh, seeing you do or in in the future well besides besides rotten tail um I'm, I'm actually working on a really cool uh indie film right now um called uh, uh my true fairy tale which is uh a nice drama about some young kids who are in involved in a, in a bad car wreck and kind of the the stuff that, that comes out of that and uh uh um, you know, I'm, I'm one of the parents of the kids and, and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, so it's a, it's a really nice slice of life drama, which, uh, which I'm enjoying very much. That's what I'm on set for right now. And then I have a film uh, that I did last year called Sleeping in Plastic that's going to go to a lot of the festivals. It's a, it's a great festival film. Um, a guy named Van Dithong, he, uh, he wrote and directed it. And it's a, it's a very cool uh, sort of gritty um, uh, story about you know some kids who 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 get who get a hold of somebody's drug money that they shouldn't have you know what I'm saying and it happens uh, it, ha it and they get in themselves into some deep trouble and I, I get to play a really awesome uh, like redneck drug dealer which is a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> That's what's up. That's cool. That's cool. All right, before I let you go, uh, where can people go online to get more information about what you're up to and anything that you're working on? Um, mainly, I mean the, the thing. The platforms that I'm most active on are, are Twitter and Instagram, um, uh, and both of those have the same handle. It's the letter I, the letter M, and then my name, Corin Nimick. So it's I am Corin Nimick, and um, and that uh, that is where anybody who wants to can track me down. All right, great. Thanks for uh, taking the time out to chat with me. It was uh, it was awesome to catch up with you. Yeah, it's great to catch up with you as well. So that was my interview with Corin Namek. 
links to where you can find out more information about Rotten Tail and to follow Coronomic online can be found on the show notes for this episode at freshesthepodcast.com. So that's another episode in the books. Goodbye and good night. Fresh, 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 fresh is the word.